in the name of Jesus. Amen. So St. Peter had a mother-in-law. <laughs> That's not something you, you think about every day, is it? The prince of the apostles had his princess. He was married. Uh, presumably children, too. We, we don't know for sure, but there are some fairly reliable ancient traditions that say so. So like a lot of us, in a lot of ways, is Peter. Uh, that that mother-in-law, she's kind of the star of the text, the first part anyway. We, we don't know. We don't know much anything about her other than what we, we have here, what kind of woman she was. But human nature, uh, being what it is, even across cultures and millennia, I suppose there's a fair chance that she wasn't all too pleased when her beloved princess came over and told her how her husband, the father of her children, had decided to leave. <laughs> the very respectable and reliable fishing business to, to what? Find himself and start wandering around with this homeless philosopher named Jesus. Uh, maybe when the older ladies got together, uh, it wouldn't be a big surprise, right? If Peter, if he was a conversation piece, a cause for a, a fair bit of head shaking, just who does he think he is? If he's going to go off and find himself, well, he just might as well find himself a new wife. <laughs> who knows? Uh, of course, if that was Peter's mother-in-law's first take on him taking up with that homeless philosopher, I, I think we can be pretty certain that Peter scored some major points and that she had a change of heart when at Peter's behest, that homeless philosopher came to her house, saw her sick in bed with a fever, took her by the hand, raised her up, healed and whole. Turns out there is a significant upside to having an apostle as a son-in-law. In upside, like instead of, of probably dying from a fever, this is pre-antibiotics, a fever can augur very bad news. The upside to having Peter married to your daughter is that the one with whom he's finding himself finds you in bed, takes your hand, raises you up, healed and whole. One of my children had a fever this past week and spent a significant time in bed. It wasn't COVID, uh, not the flu, not strep, not mono, not exactly sure what it was. But whatever it was, we did not get St. Peter at the door, nor his boss, not in the flesh anyway. We just had to wait it out with lots of liquids and rest and Tylenol. Uh, now, fortunately, it wasn't that serious, but of course, when you get a fever, especially these days, any days really, even with antibiotics, you never know, do you? What started with a, a fever for many people these days has, of course, turned out to be very much more serious. People and those who love them might read today's gospel lesson and say something like, sure must be nice having a son-in-law as an apostle. But what about the rest of us? Oh, what about the rest of us with just plain old sons-in-laws who aren't so fortunate? Maybe even people who, unlike Peter's mother-in-law, people who instead of dissing Jesus to the ladies, have actually loved and trusted in Jesus all along. What of them still left with their fevers? What of you still left with your fevers? 
you look closely at, at today's gospel lesson, you'll see there is a detail right in the text that might lead at least some of us to ask that very sort of question. Right after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, we're told that after sundown, people are probably waiting for the, the Sabbath to be over. We're told the people of Capernaum, verse 32, brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. All. Jump to verse 34. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Many. All who were sick, many were healed. Now that might seem an insignificant detail, but it's exactly the kind of detail that will very likely jump out at you if you or someone you love is suffering or has suffered from a fever or from a fever that did not get Peter's mother-in-law kind of treatment. If you're one of those sorts of people, you might do some quick math and say, let's see, all minus many, well, that equals some. And then you might cry out even less pleased than a mother finding out that her daughter's husband has quit his job. You might cry out, why the heck the sum? <laughs> Maybe if you don't cry out, and we all could, because we all, even if we don't have a fever, have some sort of fever, fill in what you want. If you don't cry out that way, I wonder if it's because you feel you're not supposed to. You're not allowed to. Then you're not allowed to, to cry out to God for Pete's sake. Why his mother-in-law, but not me and the feverish one I love? And so maybe you, you pretend you're not supposed to notice that kind of thing, but, but friends of God, God does not need our pretending. We don't either. Lord knows way too much of our lives are just an elaborate fakery. You don't need any more of that. So why don't we just let God have it? If anyone can take it, he can after all. <laughs> Our Old Testament lesson is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Isaiah 40, um, God speaking to his people, Israel through them to us, speaking to a people who have been through the ringer. He's speaking words that are ultimately meant to be comfort. But I noticed something in the midst of them. God asked a question. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right hand is disregarded by my God. Now, I'm pretty sure in the context, that's meant to be some sort of like rhetorical question from God. A, uh, what did I ever do to you sort of thing? But let's not got, let God off the hook so easily. <laughs> if he's going to ask, what do we just answer? Why do, you say my, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? What do you mean, Lord? What do you mean, why? You think it's maybe because I got this stinking fever or this stinking fever and you don't seem to care. Or maybe it's because, maybe it's because it is a Herculean chore just for me to get out of bed in the morning and you don't seem to be doing anything about it. Maybe it's because my children are suffering or because my parents are horrible. <laughs> and I would really like you to put an end to the suffering and the horribleness, but you don't seem to be. Maybe it's because I'm painfully lonely or I have cancer or my whole world seems to be on fire. Or, or, or. Would you care for me to go on, Lord, with the reasons of why? <laughs> I might wonder, might wonder if you have not taken notice. Hmm. I read, read part of an interview 
this this week um, that Stephen Colbert, you know him, a funny guy, late night. He was doing it with a guy named John uh, Mulaney. You might know him too. He's a fairly well-known comedian. He was a writer for Saturday Night, Saturday night Live. Done lots of other stuff too. And, and Colbert's asking him about his, his latest project, um, uh, particularly why he's doing a uh, uh, children's musical comedy. Why would you do something like that? Well, and Mulaney, he says, he says it because, well, he likes working with, with kids between the ages of 8 and 13. This is, he says, why? He says, that is the state I'd like to be in because people at that age tend to be very kind and thoughtful and they also know that they have no control over their lives because they're children. Every once in a while, someone will say, you're going to karate class now and then you're in karate class all of a sudden. He says, I thought I could control the karate classes of my life, but you can't, not even as an adult. You still will sometimes be shoved into the minivan and be told you're taking ballroom dancing. <laughs> I think that response is, is pretty funny and, and true, actually funny, because it's true. And I know it's not completely true. Mulaney doesn't have his own children and so hasn't seen uh, temper tantrums from the 11-year-olds like some of us. Have, but true enough. True enough in the sense that children of a certain age are just resigned to the fact that they don't have a whole lot of control over things. Even over things they don't like or can't explain. So, so they just kind of have to roll with it. Have to roll with a karate class and ballroom dancing even if you don't like it. And roll with it a little more easily when you know that the one shoving you into the back seat and driving the minivan is the one who loves you very much and promises to protect you no matter what. Maybe even roll with a fever or with all those other things that make us blow up at God and give him all the reasons why we might think he's not paying attention. The rest of that beautiful chapter of Isaiah, one of those beautiful in all of Scripture, is pretty much God saying, yes, I am paying attention. How could I not? I am the one who who loves you so very much and will protect you finally and strengthen you no matter what. Those who wait, as hard as it is to wait, wait upon the Lord, shall renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. So says the Lord, the one driving the minivan, even if it's going to places we don't understand and we'd rather not go. And Jesus in Capernaum healing all those diseases. Well, take that back, healing many of those diseases. That is God saying in Jesus, I'm paying attention. It's not God saying as much as we wish it were. It's not God saying, I will heal every fever right now. But it is God saying, Jesus saying, I am paying attention and I am control, in control and I see and I do have power over all those diseases and power over all your demons. While it's not a promise to calm every fever and mend every brokenness now, it is a preview. Jesus moves on from Capernaum because he has more to do. It's a preview. It's a foretaste of. It's a down payment on the great healing, calming mending, and exercising to come. 
The one who calmed fevers and cast out demons in Capernaum is the one who wears our sorrows and bears our sins on the cross. Is the one who left his crypt three days later. Is the Christ who promises to come to make everything whole and everything healed. And while that's not everything, it is something. Last thing. A uh, German theologian and pastor named Helmut Thielicke. Uh, he lived in Germany from 1908 to 1986. Although he was a brilliant uh, student, um, student of the greatest professors of his day in the 1930s, Thielicke had to take a, a kind of substandard teaching position because he didn't play nice, because he denounced the, the Nazis. Uh, a little bit later, by 1940, um, for his outspoken criticism, the Gestapo stri- uh, stripped him of his, his university positions altogether. So he became a sort of itinerant preacher and, and teacher. In fact, he's, he's maybe best known for some of his, his wartime sermons. In one, in one of those sermons, uh, Tilaka is preaching to a very small group of Christians in Stuttgart. He's preaching to them as they have gathered um, just days after their city has been devastated by yet another RAF raid, death, destruction, fevers, literal and figural abound. And Pastor Tilaka says this. He says, dear children, he who has the victory of the last hour can endure the next few minutes. Jesus' healings and exorcisms are not promises of an immediate fix. They are pictures of your God's compassion and previews, foretastes of the last hour, the last victory to come, when no matter who your in-laws are, your Lord will find you in bed. Take your hand and raise you up healed and whole. Dear friends of God, whatever they bring, whatever fevers fill them, he who has the victory of the last hour can endure, will endure the next few minutes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.